You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers. Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Mays. Welcome back, everyone. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host of the ScammerCast. And this is Art Mains, your other co-host for the ScammerCast.com. You know, cybersecurity is such a big deal, Kurt. It really is a hot topic in the United States, but really all around the world. It is, Art. You know, we've witnessed numerous data breaches, malware attacks, and now the latest trend, uh, this thing called ransomware. It's so annoying, isn't it? Holding a a computer hostage or a a complete business hostage until a payment is made. So, you know, it seems like data breaches are almost inevitable. It sure does. And recently there was that hospital out in Los Angeles that paid a ransom of $17,000 to get their system unlocked. So it's ridiculous. It is, indeed. So how do we keep ourselves and our older adult parents and loved ones from becoming a target. Today we're joined by Matthew Heron, an expert in cybersecurity. He is the product manager for payment analytics at CSI. That's a mouthful and he's going to tell us all about that and what he does. Matt, welcome. Hello. Hi, Matt. Sponsored by Midwest Trust and Western Union. Tell our audience uh, a little bit about what you do as product manager of payment analytics. My job uh, primarily consists of uh, emerging technologies. We are constantly looking to to drive innovation in the payment space. I've previously worked with advanced analytics, always seeking to, to increase our customers' profitability, both from the risk side as well as, as the income side. And really, the risk side has been our primary focus the last few years. You know, identification of merchant breaches, advanced fraud monitoring techniques, really seeking to to control fraud losses, both reactively but also proactively. So, Matt, you have an interesting uh, educational background that's led you to this position. Share with our audience your background and how you got to this company called CSI. Well, uh, I I did my undergrad work uh, at Indiana University. Then I went on to law school, learned that I didn't want to be an attorney. So, uh, <laughs> well, I just don't then, understand. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, why would that be? Yeah. And then I, I actually got my MBA from Purdue following that. So uh, I've, I've got a boatload of, of education that uh, hopefully has helped me get to where I am today. The, I guess the bottom line question that, that we're certainly interested in and that we think our listeners are interested in is, how is personal information stolen today? I mean, what what are the f- forms and ways that the crooks are stealing the information? Primarily, you know, the, the, there's a, a multitude of approaches. Really, any way they can get it is probably the uh, <laughs> okay. shortest answer uh, to that question. You know, the, the goal for these people is is about scalability. They want to go to uh, information repositories places that have a lot of high-value information. Uh, So you're talking doctor's offices, credit agencies, utility companies. Those are places that that have a high degree of of personal information 
uh, right. about uh, you know consumers. Beyond that uh, is payment information. So what they're what they're seeking out is is really any information that can be monetized and allows them to either make a financial transaction uh, or enhance uh, and make a more valuable financial transaction later. So do they sell this information on what they call the dark web or, Correct. or where where do they go with this information once they get it? You know, and this is this is something that would be surprising to I think most people. Think amazon.com. Okay. These these sales sites, these these carding sites and, and information sales repositories uh, on the dark net have have become really one-stop shop. You know, they they're not only selling personal information and financial information and financial credentials, they're selling login information. They're selling uh, malware techniques. They're selling software that that can assist their buyers to to perpetrate additional tech, uh, additional attacks. <laughs> this kind of this kind of brings to mind, uh, you know, the the uh, four dummies series. What is this hacking for dummies? <laughs> right, right, right. They're they're right. trying to make it easier yeah. for their customers to do all of the bad things that they want to do. Wow. And they're not just selling information. Uh, they're providing warranty services. I think that's one of the most surprising things. Uh, warranty services? Yeah. What do you mean? What do you so, mean by a warranty? So they're actually, you know, this is a, very, a pure free market. The, this is very reputational based. So in order to drive their prices up, their customers want quality control. They want quality assurance. Uh, so over time, in, the, in recent years, we've started to see uh, sellers of, of this financial information, this stolen information, actually warranty their product so that if, if I sell you card information and you go out and, and try to use it, if it doesn't work, I as the seller will actually replace it for free if in the event uh, that I sold you bad information. That sound that you hear is my mind being blown. I mean, crooks have warranties and guarantors. I mean, what right. we've just gone into an alternate universe, I think. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that's just the result of the the fact that you're engaging in illegal activity and and it is reputation based. You know, I as a seller of information am, am only good as good as as my customers tell people that I am. Wow. Uh, so if I sell you bad information, you're never going to come back to me. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, we have just entered the the new world, and uh, wow, what a different what different way of thinking of things. So, so Matt, you know, we hear and we've talked here on the ScammerCast before about this concept of the dark web. You know, this network that that most people don't know about, or if they know about it, they just sort of think it's a shadowy thing and they don't bother learning anymore. But from your perspective, being an insider in the industry, what does the dark web mean to you? The dark web, in my mind, is the inevitable result of all of the, the various devices and, and networked you know, objects that exist in the world today. Uh, it's kind of the internet of things. As we start getting smarter you know, and I put that in air quotes, mm -hmm, uh, sure. it, it, more devices are connected to the Internet. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what that means is that more devices are, are capable of being taken over. People aren't typically concerned about their smart TV from a network security standpoint. Uh, but they but should th be. That is the exact type of device that could be used to store, you know, illegal photos or, or you know, hosting illegal sites. Wow. So then what, what should people know who are listening to this about the dark web? I mean, what, what do they need to know about the availability of their information on this thing called the dark web? I, 
I, I would say that, that, you know, we pretty much have to assume after, you know, data breach after data breach, health insurances, health companies, right. hospitals, credit reporting agencies, you know, the assumption really should be that ultimately your information is probably out there to some degree, and it's probably for sale, uh, mm-hmm. really for a shockingly low price. It's, it's, it's almost accepting the fact that everyone has probably been breached to some degree. So when you talk about these breaches, are there different kinds of breaches or types of breaches that, that people need to be concerned about? Well, sure. So it, there's, there's a difference between kind of identity theft in that they're attempting to obtain enough information to, to you know, in effect, become you and financial information. Okay. So that would be like a merchant POS system having a breach. And that's a uh, and point that's of sale, really right? just looking for financial credentials that can be used uh, to make transactions. Uh, they don't really care about who you are or really anything about you other than the fact that, that they're trying to, to use your bank account information to perpetrate fraud. Okay. So for our listeners, a POS is a point of sale system. It's those little devices at the checkout counter. Correct. Okay, great. Gotcha. Matt, you said that this information is out there for sale at shockingly low prices. Do you you have any information or a sense as to what various items of personal information go for uh, on the dark web? A Facebook account would go for anywhere from a quarter to 50 cents. You know, social security number, $10 to, to $25. Email accounts, all of this could go for, you know, two, three bucks. Uh, it, it varies, you know, based on the seller and, and their, again, their reputation uh, for providing quality goods, uh, what kind of assurances they're affording uh, their customers. You know, a lot of this isn't just about one infection point. You know, they, they sell Facebook accounts, for example, mm-hmm. uh, in order to spread malware to additional users and in order to obtain more information. So talk our listeners through that. How does that process work? If you ever get a, a Facebook message from someone that you don't know or, or potentially do know that, that's on your friends list, right. and it seems suspect, you know, they're, they're using language that they don't seem, it doesn't seem normal uh, right. for that person. Right. They're talking to you in a way that, you know, you may not have seen this person in, in a while, and they're just talking to you about something that, that seems abnormal. Uh, and they're probably including a link in the, the message itself. And the hope is that uh, you, as a, a, a quote-unquote friend of this person, mm-hmm. uh, will will buy into this message and, and click on the link and, and follow, mm-hmm. follow the link. And then what happens typically? So either you will be prompted to provide credentials to your Facebook account, which would then be stolen the, uh, themselves, or your computer would be infected with some sort of malware in order to, again, log your Facebook credentials, your email credentials, potentially capture uh, payment credentials. Mm. You know, that's the idea behind growing the infection rate. It's about uh, disseminating, not only capturing that person's credentials, but then turning your Facebook into a, a bot that would, uh, again, expand the infection to, to your Facebook friends and, and, you know, your email contacts. Right. Okay, and, and for our listeners, uh, explain what a bot is, because there's a lot of folks who may the not know. The idea behind a bot is that it's it's creating kind of a, a network of of infection. So you're spreading the the malware that is that has been installed uh, on a handful of machines to additional machines, 
uh, and then that maintain that that network of infected machines is all tied back to kind of a central repository uh, that the 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 fraudster or, or the perpetrator of, of this malware, uh, the purveyor of this malware, uh, controls. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Scary, scary thought. You know, uh, Matt, uh, an area that uh, we have a lot of interest in in the identity theft and fraud area is medical identity theft and sure. medical fraud. And uh, obviously a lot of these data breaches are impacting hospitals and health insurance companies like Anthem right. that we had here in the in the Midwest not too long ago. So what are you seeing in the arena of medical identity theft and how the criminals are using that information? So the, that is the medical area is really uh, an interesting uh, one. So that's it's so extremely personal, and the idea behind this is that this is information that they can leverage uh, to really be very convincing in their attempts to garner more information, garnish more information from you know their targets. The, the best example I can think of is kind of a it's kind of hyper spear phishing. It's a, a targeted attack going at after individuals based on their medical histories. So I say I, I had a broken leg last August, and I had some x-rays done. Now, I think anyone that's gone through a, a medical procedure knows that, that billing is very complicated <laughs> oh, uh, in the yeah. medical arena. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's not unheard of. Uh, for someone to, to get a notice that, hey, uh, you may not have, have paid the full amount uh, that you owe, uh, or we for you know we just haven't billed you yet. Sure. So so you may get an email saying, uh, hey, so you had uh, a procedure done uh, last August. Uh, you had some X-rays. Your your bill is actually past due. Uh, you you have twenty seven dollars outstanding. Uh, we don't want to send you to collections, of course. Uh, so if you just follow the link below, uh, we would be happy to, to settle this this bill uh, outside of collections wow. today. And, and the idea there, you know, it's it's really from a consumer standpoint very convincing because they they know your name, they know your address, they know that you had an X-ray done back back in August. I, as a consumer, would would be very tempted to say, I don't want to go to collections. I, sure. I, let's get this taken care of. So you you follow the link, thinking that you'll take you know you're you're about to make a payment to the the insurance company or the medical institution, and the the, the website. Once you follow that link, can look very convincing. Uh, you'll enter in your payment credentials. It'll say, "Okay, we've taken care of it." Uh, and they're not actually—it's uh, not actually about stealing that twenty-seven dollars. They're not actually running any transactions. Hmm. They're just capturing all of the payment credentials that you entered. Uh-huh. And, then and then they use it them. off to another another party. Okay, so they sell it off to another party. Okay. You know, you've talked about various items of information for sale. What's the most valuable? I would say it's it's between a social security number and a, a payment credential, a card number with a PIN. I would say probably a, a card number with a PIN is, is the most valuable piece of information that a, a crook uh, can really obtain. Uh, because effectively at that point, it's, it's simply encoding that card and, and walking up to an ATM and, and taking cash out. Wow. Now, I was picking up on your statement about there's a link in an email or there's a link in a message 
here at the ScammerCast, we talk a lot about dead giveaways for scams. Yep. And that seems like it would be the prime dead giveaway here is the presence of any kind of a link that they're asking you to click on. Would you right. agree with that? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. It's okay. it's not that all links are bad. Right. You know, sometimes it's as simple as hovering over the link and seeing what your browser says in the bottom left to, you know, does the the link text match where the the browser says that, you know, the the link is going. But yeah, absolutely. If in doubt, you know, if, if you're getting an email or a, a message from someone that seems abnormal or that you don't know, don't click the link. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. Great advice. We can't repeat it enough. If you hover over the, the link and it shows some weird mix of letters and numbers or someplace that doesn't look like where you're supposed to go, don't click on it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Matt's going to have a, a lot of great uh, tips and easy to implement solutions here for us later in the show. We're visiting with Matt Heron today, a, a cybersecurity expert with CSI. Matt, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, it, it almost seems a little bit like the Wild West. It seems like uh, we've advanced, but we've gone back uh, to when there there weren't a, a lot of laws and justice uh, was a, a floating concept. Are there any laws or sort of top-down government solutions to this kind of problem? This is this is a, a tough part because you know, unfortunately. While we've tried, most of our efforts seem to have, have failed or, or potentially even made things worse. You know, I would certainly hope that all organizations are continuing to enhance their efforts, you know, but, but in terms of codifying a security standard into right. law, that's largely a bad idea. Uh, like any technology, you know, it evolves, things change. Right. Uh, and so ultimately, creating a law that, that meets one standard or requires all organizations hit a single standard uh, really kind of lowers the bar. Uh, it really creates a situation where everyone's only doing that amount, that minimum amount, and right. no more. Yeah. And okay. so they, they stop innovating, they stop trying to, to advance security and, and do more than they need to, mm -hmm. because they've kind of checked that regulatory box. So, so why can't we shut down these organizations that, that run so much fraud? I mean, I think about a while back, there was a story in the news about the hacker group Anonymous who was targeting ISIS, trying to shut down all of their online activities. Aren't there some non-governmental ways that, that maybe we could try to shut these these crooks down? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, from a law enforcement standpoint, it is very challenging. The Internet is cross, you know, it's global. Uh, mm -hmm. There there aren't really borders. So, you know, I, as a, a security professional, we, we kind of hate when the FBI or other law enforcement agencies internationally shut down carting sites, for example, those watering holes. It sounds sort of counterintuitive, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of the devil you know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and shutting them down really doesn't help because they have dozens of domains, so those you okay. know, email addresses or, or Internet addresses, uh, web addresses that, that are ready to go. Mm. And the moment you shut one down, they just start up another one out of another country. Okay. I mean, I just think if the Chinese can hack into the Pentagon and the North Koreans can hack into the Office of Personnel Management or whatever it was, it would seem like these would be great targets for folks to go after no matter how far they try to run. Right. And and I think that's, that's you know, it, it is it is good to, to try to control these efforts, but, but ultimately there's a, a lot of value in monitoring. 
and being able to, okay. to keep up with, with what they're doing. Uh, and, and trying to just simply shut down down the domain really just creates a game of, of whack-a-mole. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, you hit one, and, and suddenly another one pops up in, in Slovakia. You shut down the, the domain out of Brazil, and, and next thing you know, there's one out of Romania. Gotcha. Uh, so it is, it's, it's very challenging. Okay. Now, you use the term watering hole. What do you mean there? What, what are you talking about? So watering holes are kind of uh, places where lots of people meet. It's a term that we use to describe sites like Facebook or, or Yahoo, online dating sites. Lots of users, lots of people interacting, lots of opportunity for a potential scam. So things like Facebook, would that be the ultimate watering hole? I, I would say, yeah, that is definitely up there. Um, okay. Email services and, and things like that uh, are, are right up there as well. Well, this has been incredible, and it's uh, yeah. You know, the, the the more we talk about it, and the more we learn about it, uh, it's just an ever evolving, uh, interesting area, and uh, an amazing amount of smart people devoting a lot of energy to figuring out how to get your personal information. <laughs> right? right. It would be great if yeah. if they just all decided to get jobs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. Well, but, boy, it sounds like they've got a full-time job, you know, sell it yeah, if they're given. And that's, that's important to understand. You know, yeah. this is a $10 billion industry. Wow. Uh, wow. And those estimates are, are expected to rise. Uh, for 2016, we're looking at, at roughly $14 billion in, in payment fraud. That's wow. incredible. So, you know, this is this is a very lucrative operation for a lot of people. Yeah, these and these people are as incredibly business savvy and and organized and interested in success as, as all of us in the professional world, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, Matt, you you went to law school. You, you've obtained an MBA. How in the world did you get interested and involved in cybersecurity? It's something that largely happened by accident. While pursuing grad school, I, I ended up working briefly for uh, the governor of Indiana's campaign, and I realized that I had student loans uh, to pay. <laughs> so I, There's always uh, that. I had a friend of mine who, who worked for uh, the company that I'm with now in, in payments, and we had gone to school together. We'd known each other a long time, and, and he had asked that you know maybe uh, I, I come and, and work with him. And I started working in fraud, uh, really, as, as things were taking off. Uh, it was it was sort of that that point in time when you know fraud was really starting to boom right. uh, in the payment space. Unfortunately, I, I work for a company that that really gave us a, an open you know forum to pursue whatever avenues were necessary uh, to help our our customers save as much money as possible. Uh, so we we were given kind of a, a blank slate to say go out and and stop this, you know, however, however you think it's best. Uh, and fortunately, we were able to get really creative, uh, do a lot of innovative things uh, in order to, to, to clamp down on, on risk uh, for our customers. So yeah, I, I can't really say that it was something that I had always planned on getting into, sure. but it was something that I, I sort of uh, fell into and, and uh, seemed to have a knack for. And when did you start with CSI? The end of 2008. Uh, is actually when I, I started with my company now. Okay, and tell our audience a little bit more about CSI and and who your customers are and sort of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. Um, so CSI is a, a financial processing company. We also uh, do a lot of other um, cloud and networking services, managed services, document services uh, for financial institutions, primarily community and regional banks. 
the real goal behind my company, and we kind of have a mantra, is that you know Arthur Clarke, the mm-hmm. science fiction writer, uh, once said, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology uh, is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, right. So my, my company's goal is, is to kind of exist behind the scenes. We are, are here to do things that, that organizations can't really do uh, themselves uh, based on scalability uh, and technological constraints. But the goal is really to, to let them front-end things uh, and, and be the face of all the success. Very interesting. All right, so yeah, so Art, let's uh, let's take a short break here at uh, the ScammerCast, and when we come back, Matt is going to share with all of us some solutions that we can use. Very easy stuff that all of us can use at home to keep ourselves from becoming a target, and also will visit with us a bit about what's coming in the future. There's lots of interesting technology being uh, innovated daily in the, in the payment space with credit cards and so on and so forth. So he's going to talk to us about that. So stay with us here at thescammercast.com. We'll be right back. It's time to take a break during this episode of The ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at scammercast.com and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The Discipline to Grow the strength of experience, the ability to adapt. Values that endure. Midwest Trust. There was a day when the villain was easy to spot. These days are different. Today, scammers impersonate their victims' loved ones and make up an urgent situation. I've been arrested, I've been mugged, I'm in the hospital and plead for money to resolve it. At Western Union, we want to help. We remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person and always verify before you send. You work hard for your money. Don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days, weeks, or even a lifetime to work for. Western Union, move money for better. My name is Chris Hadnagy. I'm the author of Fishing Dark Waters, and you are listening to ScammerCast.com on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thought about a career in voiceover? 
Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? The fear, the adrenaline, the unknown. Law enforcement training for the arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints, ballistics, DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at litaconference.com. That's L-E-T-A conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you behind the thin blue line. LetaConference.com L-E-T-A Conference.com Go behind the badge. Welcome back to ScammerCast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Welcome back, everyone. This is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast. We've been taking a short break. And this is Art Maines, your co-host on ScammerCast.com. And, you know, Matt, we've seen statistics that about 31% of all personal computers are infected with malware. Does that fit with your numbers? And how can we protect ourselves from this stuff? Yeah, and, and that's that's a, a pretty accurate figure based on, on several studies that have been done in recent years. You know, the idea that all malware is is catastrophic, I think, is is kind of misleading. Sometimes it's as, as simple as a, a piece of software that's that's loading kind of annoying ads uh, mm-hmm. within your browser. Uh, so it's not that all uh, are are this this uh, apocalyptic situation, but roughly you know seventy percent of malware does capture some sort of of personal information, including uh, email address information, potentially login information, and, and payment credentials. Oh wow! That, so that's a high percentage. So it's safe to say that most of it is up to something not so good. Right, and and that's you know that's really the problem. Anytime you have something on on a device uh, in your control you, that you know shouldn't be there, uh, you probably want to at least have a general understanding of of how to either remove it and or long term prevent it from happening again. Okay, so tell us about that. 
there's there's a number of easy fixes out there that a lot of people can be doing. Many browsers have add-ons, such as Flash. That's a, a, a simple one that stands out. Uh, the vast majority of people don't need uh, Flash on their machine. Is that a video um, player? Is that what that does? Right. It, it allows certain games to play. YouTube previously used Flash in order to, to play videos, uh, but has actually moved away from that to, to HTML5. So a lot of, of sites uh, are recognizing the, the inherent vulnerability of, of Flash software and are moving away from it. Okay. And I would recommend many consumers do the same. So how does the average consumer who, who may know how to turn the computer on and off and log in and out, that sort of thing, how does the average consumer go about removing an application like Flash? So what they would do is, is basically go to their control panel. Uh, assuming they have a Windows machine, they would go to their control panel. Uh, they would go to the programs menu. Uh, if it's an older version, it might say add remove programs. And they would simply select Flash uh, from that dropdown uh, and, and click uninstall. Other software that kind of has the same sort of effect and, and, and threat is, is QuickTime, RealPlayer, uh, Shockwave, Microsoft Silverlight. Many of these pieces of software were used at, at one point or another uh, in order to enhance functionality, both from a web experience as well as uh, you know QuickTime, for example, is, is a part of the iTunes suite. Right. Um, but the average, the vast majority of consumers are, are not going to need uh, this. It's, it's sort of bloatware that sits on your machine. You don't ever use it, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it still presents a threat because it's sort of a, an avenue by which a, a scammer can infect your machine. So, so how could somebody get into a machine with QuickTime, for example? I'm an Apple guy, so how, how do they use QuickTime to get into a machine? Uh, effectively, you know, it's, it's, a, it's something as simple as uh, QuickTime for Windows might not be updated as, as frequently as QuickTime for, for Mac. Uh, so if, if there's a disparate level of security on one machine operating system compared to another, these attackers can effectively you know, exploit that hole, that network connectivity hole, uh, in order to infect a machine or insert script language or malware uh, into, into your uh, device. Okay. Well, interesting. This brings to mind the, our episode with Mark Goodman. Definitely. Where he talked about, he calls it the update protocol and right. how to exactly. keep a machine updated. But the, one of the recommendations is make sure you're always updating and yes. downloading uh, official security patches, security right. updates. And right. it sounds to me like, Matt, that you know, for these things like maybe Silverlight or Real Player that aren't being updated anymore, that ought to be a, an indicator to folks that if updates aren't coming, maybe you don't need that on your system anymore. Exactly. You know, it's a, I would take it a step further beyond, beyond making sure that you update things. It's really, if you don't use a certain piece of software, get rid of it. You know, there's, there's no reason to keep it on your machine. And if you're uncertain, you can always reinstall it. So you can, you can potentially, if, if you don't use, if you don't know whether or not you use Flash, uninstall Flash and, and, and see if you encounter a problem. Uh, If if you need to reinstall it, you always can. Uh, And if if you go to a website that that wants to use Flash that you frequent, you know, on a a regular basis that needs Flash, it will prompt you 
to, to update Flash or, or reinstall Flash. And at that time, you can if you so choose. But I think a lot of people don't use the, uh, a huge portion of, of these sort of add-ons, these, these, this bloatware that sits out there. And, and I think the best recommendation is, you know, if, if you're not certain, you can always reinstall it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, so for the average person, let's say this is a senior who's 70 years old, could they just go to like a computer store or someplace like Office Depot and say, hey, you know, help me figure out the things that I don't use and get rid of them? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, local community centers and libraries okay. often have classes on these things okay. uh, that can educate people of all ages okay. uh, on, on, you know, what certain software does, uh, whether or not you need it. And, and I think, yeah, absolutely, there's other companies, private companies that, that can assist you both in, in removing uh, things that may be legitimate, like these add-ons, or potentially malware as well, if they think, you know, if their machine's acting a little uh, finicky or, or buggy. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so you taught me a new term, bloatware. I love that. <laughs> it's like the Basically cyber equivalent of clutter. It yeah. really doesn't need to be there. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I have a, a room at home that is my bloat closet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I throw everything in I don't use anymore. Right, right. yeah. It's, it's like the cyber equivalent of clutter around your house or <laughs> yeah. something. That's really sure. interesting. Okay. So, so Matt, what other uh, practices can the average computer user use to uh, help protect themselves? Well, a big, a big uh, place to start is, is the type of browser that you're using. Uh, a lot of people think that the only way to connect to the internet is, is through that blue E. You know, so if, if Otherwise known as Internet Explorer. <laughs> that Internet Explorer, exactly. Yeah, right. So if, if, you're, if you're using Internet Explorer, you know, one, that is, is not a browser that's been traditionally updated on a very uh, frequent basis. Mm -hmm. While Microsoft has made efforts to improve that, there are much more dynamic software, uh, pieces of software out there in Google's Chrome browser, mm -hmm. uh, as well as Mozilla Firefox. Okay. Uh, those offer a lot more feature functionality uh, and, and continual updates uh, from a security standpoint. Okay. And, and there's a lot of add-ons that are, are good, you know, from a, from a software standpoint with, with uh, those browsers. Things like ad blockers and script blockers. Right. Yeah, we've talked about that before. Yeah. Yeah. And the ad blockers is, uh, you know, it's important because ads are not just annoying. But we've seen situations where they're actually a, a threat vector. Right. Um, they're so-called malvertising. Exactly. Um, and this is where malicious scripting is, is embedded within an ad. Uh, and in, in loading in your browser, it's actually infecting it. Uh, so the, the simple solution here is don't load the ad. Yeah, very yeah. true. Very That's true. good. That's really good. Yeah. Matt, what about, because so many people will buy a computer and then they'll see this software package called antivirus and they'll think, oh, you know, I need to buy that. And there's a number of different products out there, obviously, sure. and we don't need to to single anyone out. But what's your what's your thought on antivirus protection for the average consumer? I have a very interesting uh, position on this. I personally do not actually use any antivirus software. None, none whatsoever. Really? None whatsoever. Wow. I, I think it. I think of it largely as a. It's kind of a, a false hope. You know, it, people assume that because it's sitting there in the bottom right and it's got that that green check mark, yeah. uh, that their machine is fine. Everything is is safe. Uh, unfortunately, what we've seen is that the first thing most malware does uh, is it disables the antivirus software. And so, 
So you makes know, sense. If, if your machine yeah. is infected, right. it basically tells the antivirus software to to give you that green check and say, hey, everything's clear, yeah. no no worries here. And, and unfortunately, people become over dependent on that. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of valuable uh, software suites uh, from a security standpoint out there, and that they, it doesn't serve any purpose. But I'm kind of an advocate of of you know taking a more proactive approach. Uh, for the average consumer, you know, it's it's worth having an antivirus software suite out there. Okay. Um, it, I think it's just important for everyone to understand that it's not the end result. Uh, it's not the only thing you need to be doing. Okay. So what else do we need to be doing, us regular folks out here? Sure. So you know, like I had mentioned, uh, ad blockers before. Right. right. Two-factor authentication, I think, is a, is a, a great feature. Okay. You know, most sites are are offering that kind of secondary level of authentication. So if if you log into your uh, computer, you know, log into a site from a computer or device that you've never used before, mm-hmm. i.e., someone in Brazil who's trying to steal your information, they're forced to get a, a single time code to their cell phone or uh, their email, and the, the assumption is that they don't have access to those that secondary factor of authentication. Right, right. Is that pretty effective? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, it is It is one of the most effective things that you, that you can do to prevent uh, account takeover. Um, so, so, Matt, um, we've talked uh, a couple times here on the ScammerCast about two-factor authentication, but would you remind our audience exactly what two-factor authentication is? The idea behind two-factor authentication is that that when the site or or company that that you're interacting with uh, is unsure or presented with new information, uh, so say I'm trying to log into my my Gmail account. If I'm logging in from a device that Google has never seen me log into or in from before, it's not only going to ask me for my password like it would, you know, in, in any other time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also going to send a, a single-time code to my mm-hmm. phone or uh, to another email address that I've set up okay. in order to validate that not only you are who you claim to be and you have the password correct, but you have you know an additional out-of-pocket type of, of means of validating who you are. A crook is much less likely to have your cell phone, for example, exactly. where you'd receive They're not going to have access to your text messages. Right, um, right. And so that's any any time uh, a company uh, or service offers two factor authentication, uh, I would highly recommend using it. And right. it's not that you have to do it every time. You know, right. you can say remember this device. And so the mm-hmm. next time you log in from that tablet or, or that laptop, you're only going to have to use your password because okay. that company has kind of authenticated your device. I to see. You. I see. What about biometrics? I mean, on my iPhone, I've got the the fingerprint deal, and and my credit union uses that to log me into my account. Is is that an effective way for things to absolutely go? incredibly convenient? It's actually much more secure than a, a standard password um, because it's it's very hard to fake. Uh, there, you know, there have been stories done that in very controlled lab conditions, uh, people have been able to to trick that thumbprint scanner uh, on the on the iPhone. But you know, ultimately. A, it's better than than nothing, Uh, and B, those are very controlled lab conditions as opposed to the real world where the you know a crook is probably not going to have days of sitting there Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. tinkering with your your thumbprint to be able to 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 peel off a perfect copy of your thumbprint and and get it out. You know, this isn't 
NCIS or one of those, right. those crime shows, yeah, on, right. dramas on television. Uh, it's, it's actually a lot harder than uh, than those shows present. Yeah, and I think of scammers as being after the easy, uh, exactly mark. low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit, right? That's you know that's sort of the the point here. You, you know, you really you don't have to be perfect. Uh, you don't have to do everything you know a hundred percent securely. The, the goal is to really just be a you know, be challenging. Yeah. If you challenge them and, and cause things, you know, cause them to have to work for it, odds are more often than not, they're just going to move on to someone else that they don't have to put any effort in. And that's what I've heard about uh, home burglaries and stuff, too. If you have exactly. an alarm system or a dog, it just makes it more complicated and they'll move on to something that's easier. Right. It, it's not that they couldn't conceivably rewire the, the home alarm system or give a stake to the dog like they do in, in <laughs> right. movies. <laughs> right. You know, it, but but ultimately, they're probably not going to. Yeah. Well, why why would they when there's nine other houses on the street yeah, that, that, uh, that don't, don't have, have a dog? Those things. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Uh, before we move into kind of what industry is doing on the security front, there's one other thing on a personal level that I want to get your thoughts about, Matt, and that is so many of us now at home have wireless networks, right? That we connect to the internet. Right and we have a router, and there's a password on that router. What's your thought about dealing with passwords on wireless routers? It's incredibly important and often overlooked. This is a device that has memory and has processing power and, and can be used and is used to perpetrate email, bulk email scams, and, and part of that botnet you know, chain that we had, we had talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, something, it's, a, it's a computer. You know, that, and that's something that people need to understand and should be secured. Too many people, unfortunately, don't uh, secure their wireless routers. Uh, a game I like to play uh, is every time I go out to a, a restaurant, I try to connect to their, their Wi-Fi. I try, you know, the two or three most common passwords, default passwords on their routers. Mm-hmm. And you'd be, you'd be shocked how many times I'm able to actually gain access to their, their router admin portal. Wow. Um, And and you'll see the devices that are connected to that. And and potentially that's an easy way for someone to get into their point of sale system and start stealing payment credentials. Wow. Uh, It's, it's, it really, you know, these are, these are businesses that don't know any better. So yeah, you, you don't want to make it easy. You know, you don't want to, to, to be that low hanging fruit. So, so change the default credentials, take the time. It doesn't have to be an incredibly complex password, mm-hmm. but it should not be the default password. And it should not be password. <laughs> right. The word itself, exactly. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, do not make it A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four, right. five, one, right. three, four, five, six, right. Right. right, right, right. You know, the, you got to make it a little more challenging. Well, okay. well, Matt, these have been some great tips, you know, very easy to implement, and uh, want to encourage our, our audience to uh, chime in at, at ScammerCast.com and on our Facebook page. What other kinds of things are you doing to help keep your computer protected and keep your older adults safe? Yeah, leave us a comment at ScammerCast.com and, and let us know what you're doing to address this problem that we all have to deal with now of cyber security and uh, crooks that are going after our information and our payment stuff online. So Matt, from an industry perspective, what kinds of solutions are you seeing there when it comes to security? Well, from an industry perspective, we've sort of embraced the fact that, and this sounds terrible, uh, 
merchants are going to continue to be breached. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, organizations are going to continue to be breached. It's, it's sort of inevitable uh, in our minds. So from a payments perspective, you know, the, the long-term goal uh, is effectively make the information that merchants and, and organizations receive useless to steal. And, and that sounds like a, it's a, it sounds overly simplified, but it really is sort of that easy. People stop breaching uh, companies that don't have anything of value. Yeah, good point. Yeah, no, no sense of breaking into the bank if there's no money in the vault. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Right. So, so the idea behind that, uh, it's a concept called tokenization, and this is where uh, effectively you're creating dynamic credentials that, that change over time. So it, it started really with those EMV chip cards. This is where uh, this, this is kind of the first iteration of. of digital payments. It's kind of the digitalization of, of payments from the analog mag stripes. And, and the, the chip cards, uh, what they do is, is they have a static credential. So they have a, cr- a core credential, and, and that's the effectively the number on your card, okay. uh, on the front of your card. But the, it, it's surrounding that credential with, with encrypted dynamic data that changes for each transaction. And, and so that raises the bar exponentially for, for crooks because, you know, there's no real way for them to predict, uh, you know, they know what happened, what those credentials were on the last transaction when they were able to to capture it based on infecting mm-hmm. a, a merchant mm-hmm. uh, that the card was used at, but they have no way of predicting what the next transaction is going to be, mm-hmm. uh, those okay. credentials, those dynamic credentials. It, tokenization actually takes that a step further. And not only is there dynamic encryption surrounding the credential, but the credential itself is is a token. It's it's not the the real card number. It is a a you know the idea is that long term it will be a single use credential that was used for the purposes of that transaction and that transaction alone. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So is it like cloaking the actual account number or I mean Effectively, yeah. That's okay. that's the idea. So okay. so effectively a merchant is going to be presented a card number and they're going to go out for authorization uh, to Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those those networks are going to have a, a secure token vault. And they're going to take that credential and they're going to match it up to an underlying credential, okay. the, the real card number. And, and, and really, the idea is that the only way th- these tokens have any value is if you're able to break into the card networks themselves. Uh, and, right. and uh, you know, it's not to say that that's conceptually impossible, but it really, as a practical matter, is. You know, these are these are core institutions who spend billions of dollars on security, and, and you know, this is the best area to, to keep sensitive information. Uh, you know, you keep it to you keep the the credentials that can be used for payments uh, to as few parties as possible. Right. So the, all the merchants that are out there that you're out there using your card at aren't receiving credentials that can be used to perpetrate payments in the future. Wow, that's interesting. So besides the, the you know, we're now seeing a lot of us are receiving those chip cards. Right. I, I know it's a, maybe a step in the right direction, but what what else can be done over and above using that chip card? Sure. So the chip card, I think it's important for people to understand is it's the first step. It's not the end result. Uh, it's sort of I, I often liken it to the laser disc of payment technology. Um, you know, it's, it's that, that digital version of, of the the old analog you know cassette uh, VCR yeah. cassette tapes. But 
you know, without going through that Laserdisc period, we would never have gotten DVDs and Blu-rays and then ultimately digital downloads. Yeah, right. um, and, and so this is, the, this is the first step in digitalizing payments. From beyond that, we're going to go into the, the contactless space. So using, you know, fully encrypted contactless uh, NFC, uh, near-field communication channels to, to where, you know, your phone uh, is actually communicating wirelessly with, with the, uh, the merchant terminal. That sounds scary to a lot of people. They sure think, does. oh, if it's wireless, it must be, it must be inherently insecure. Someone could, could pick up those credentials and, and take them. Right. It's important to understand that it, it, this is actually exponentially more secure because the okay. credentials are tokenized. So that merchant is, is being presented that, that transaction, and, and all of that data that that merchant's being presented is only good for that transaction. So even in the off chance that someone was able to stand next to you and, and you know, get within six inches and pick up that, all of that and capture all of that uh, transaction data, it can't be used again. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's effectively it's worthless to steal. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't really matter if someone were to take it. Uh, you see a lot of, of products, you know, advertising the blocking of RFD ID right, right. perspective and things sure. like that. Long term, it doesn't. That doesn't really matter. That doesn't really apply to the phones because again, you're authenticating with your thumbprint, and, and that transmission is only active during that transaction. It's not always sending out the signal, and it's only good for that transaction at that moment in time. Uh, so it really wouldn't matter if someone was able to capture the credentials because they wouldn't be good uh, to perpetrate okay. fraud. Okay. Interesting. Well, Matt, you know, we, we're we seeing now uh, the development of Apple Pay and Android Pay and this concept of a digital wallet, and, and I don't know that much about them. What, what are these things? Well, it, the idea here is it's, it's kind of bring your own payment device. This is an area where... You're, you're letting your device, which, which by and large more and more people are having uh, or, or owning day to day, almost 80% of, of Americans have some sort of smartphone, sure. and using it to leverage payments uh, in a secure way. Uh, so there's that two-factor authentication in that they not only do they have the card information with all of the, the surrounding credentials that they would expect, but you're also authenticating yourself with your thumbprint. So that biometrics element is that second layer of security. So it's, it's an incredibly secure form of payment. It's faster than the EMV chips. Uh, I know a lot of people have, have struggled with the, the chip cards. Yeah. You, know, you insert the card. You count to twenty. Right, right. Eventually, the thing buzzes at you. Right. Um, you know that's not really the level of sophistication that American consumers have, have come to expect with payments. It doesn't really seem like magic. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so right, right. this is this is where you know it, uh, the speed and convenience of, of things like Apple Pay and Android Pay and, and Samsung Pay really mimics the speed and convenience that we've expected with Mac stripes, but brings all of that dynamic, tokenized, you know, high-level security uh, along with it. So what would you say to somebody, and I, I hear this in presentations with some regularity, what would you say to somebody who says, I don't trust any of it, I'm just going to go all cash? You know, it, it's funny because my father is actually very much that person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I get I get that sentiment. Uh, unfortunately, that's just not how the modern economy works. Like it or not, personal information is is being transmitted digitally, whether it's payment credentials or, or personal information. If if you want to go all cash, that's fine. But 
you know, there's trade-offs with that as well. If, if someone steals $200 out of your wallet, mm-hmm. you don't have recovery for that. Right. That's right. That, that $200 is gone. Mm-hmm. But if someone steals your, your card information and uses it fraudulently, the bank protects you from those fraud, the, those fraudulent transactions, and, and you ultimately recover that money. So that's a much better situation than being mugged, for example, or, or right. you know, being pickpocketed. Will we see more in the future of shifting the liability back to the consumer, though? I've been hearing this a bit with the advent of chip cards, and and that's a concern that I hear from people as well. Right now, they cover it if you lose it on a credit card or whatever. But in the future, will they continue to do that, and can they sustain those costs? I I don't think we're looking at at shifting to the consumer. Uh, I think long-term, the consumer is always going to be protected. Uh, The the real talk is is going towards having merchants kind of share Mm. in the risk. Um, You know, unfortunately, merchants are constantly being breached. That's sort of resulted in in financial institutions losing millions, if not billions of dollars in fraud. And so the idea here is let's, let's sort of balance that and, and, encourage merchants to adopt a more secure payment technology. And so that's where we're, we're finding balance. Uh, the idea behind the liability shift is, is more uh, encouraging better security standards uh, and, and a higher level security payment, uh, payment acceptance. So if you choose to not engage in a more secure transaction, you as the less secure party would be liable for the fraud. That's and and that's, that's really still between the, the merchant and the, the financial institution. Uh, the consumer, I believe, is, is, is never really going to, to take on that liability. Yeah, that's okay. an interesting uh, story that's yet to be written. In fact, right. just recently uh, I saw a news item, Walmart suing Visa mm-hmm. uh, over that too. Um, a lot of these kinds of security issues. So uh, stay tuned. That's uh, As I said, that's a story yet to be written. Sure. And, and that's there's a lot going on behind the scenes there. Um, I would say that's probably more about uh, fees than anything else. Uh, very good. Uh, like, not sure. really about security. I, I don't think Walmart really cares that much about consumer security. That's a personal opinion of mine. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, gotcha. right. And a topic for another day. Well, yeah. Matt, thank you so much for sharing all of this great information. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, I, I think payments is a, is a very interesting space uh, from a technological standpoint. We as a society have have developed so many, we've made so many strides in the technological realm over the last 20 to 30 years. And, and payments, unfortunately, is not really an area that has kept pace. It's, it's about time, so to speak, that we, we really take all of the things and the technological advancements we've made over the last you know, three decades and start applying it uh, to something as critical as financial transactions. So I, I, I understand a, a high level of skepticism and caution uh, about all of this change, but I would strongly encourage consumers to embrace it because it, this, is, this is about securing payments. This is about improving transactions because ultimately financial institutions, card networks, everyone involved, merchants even, have, have really understood that and have started to come to, come to understand that, that the average consumer's confidence in, in the security of payments has, has largely been eroded over recent, you know, the last two, three years. Right. Breach after breach. It's scary stuff. And so I think, you know, this is their effort uh, to bring that confidence back 
in the security and viability of payments so that, that customers aren't saying, you know what, I'm just going cash. I don't, I don't even want to deal with this anymore. Yeah, right. uh, and, and so I think that's, that's everyone involved in commerce understands the value of, of you know, the digital payment networks and, and methodology. Mm-hmm. And so we, we really do need to, to you know, apply all this technology that we've developed uh, in recent years uh, to the payment space. Uh, very good, very good. So Matt, where can people who are so inclined learn more about you and your company? Uh, CSIweb.com uh, is is the best reference point I can give you on our company. I'm on LinkedIn if, if people are so inclined to, to ask more questions. You know, there are a number of security blogs out there that can provide a, an immense amount of information. Krebsonsecurity.com is, yeah. is a huge resource for industry people uh, like myself. He's done an excellent job in recent years covering a multitude of topics that I think many average consumers would find interesting as well. Great. Great. Cool. Well, we will post links to uh, all of those things on the show notes page at scammercast.com. And we encourage all of you out there listening, leave us your comments, your questions, uh, your thoughts and ideas on how to keep yourself and your elderly loved ones safe when they're dealing with their computers. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. You've had some great information, and I think our listeners will find it very, very useful and helpful. So we really appreciate your time today. I appreciate being on. And until next time, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And remember, if you like the ScammerCast, share it with a friend. Leave us a comment. Tell us your story. What have you found in the world of payments? And have you gotten ripped off through some sort of a payment system? Leave us a story. Tell your story so that it can help other people. We'd love to hear from you at ScammerCast.com. And until next time, thanks for listening and helping us to hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of The ScammerCast, your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, Hammer the Scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.